0: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm so blessed to be here. I'm David Meltzer here on Office Hours with the incredible Blaine Bartlett. That's lmm. my mentor, my master, mind mindset master. How are you, Blaine? I am doing absolutely amazing today.
1: It's been a great day.
0: It's been my best day ever, so I'm with you. And speaking of which, uh, as much as today's the best day I ever had, tomorrow would be even better and there's no better person to explain why than a futurist and uh, entrepreneur, keynote speaker, founding chairman of the Advanced Human Technologies Group, and who has had a new book with a great impact. And I think nothing's more poignant than the topic or subject matter that Ross Dawson is an expert of and is speaking of and writing of, uh, of how to thrive uh, with the overwhelmed state of opportunities, options, and touches of favor. Welcome to Office Hours, Ross.
2: Awesome. Pleasure to be here.
0: It's an amazing thing. You know, I'm going to start with the idea of overload. Um, acceleration causes this feeling of overwhelmed. People, I think, that feel overwhelmed tend to procrastinate or feel stuck. Uh, but even more importantly, I think that we aren't equipped for the overload. Um, And when I say that, we aren't equipped with the deciphering capability of figuring out what's important to us, which I always say is the backbone or the vertebrae of prioritization. Prioritization, of course, being the antidote to feeling overloaded or overwhelmed. And I always say, let's feel grateful when we're overwhelmed. You have really figured this out and understand the power of success that can uh, exist within this feeling of being overloaded. What personal experience did you have? that inspired you uh, to really figure out the success that exists within the world of exponentiality.
2: So I've been working on this idea of thriving and overload for literally 25 years. I wrote an article. That's
0: it? I thought you were an overnight success, just 25 (laughs) years. Yeah. Well, That's how long I've been married, so now I get it. Okay, perfect. Well, and You're just uh, hitting your stride. Exactly. So
2: the reason I'd, I started thinking about this was I'd been working in financial markets before then, or capital markets. And this is a world which is entirely based on information. Money is information. You get a massive amount of it, and there's nobody more exposed to that than the traders and the people who are investors who are in the front line. So I'd seen that working in that world, seeing the ones who are better at it, the ones who weren't so... Good and I and I started to see that this is in fact applies to everybody. We all have too much information. Even 25 years ago, I already wrote an article called Information Overload Problem or Opportunity, and framing it saying, well, it's you can treat it either way. And that's exactly the same way now. We have an extraordinary more information today, but it's still exactly the same thing. We have essentially finite cognitive capacity, our brains are limited, and we have unlimited, infinite information. So This doesn't mean that we have to be overwhelmed or overloaded. We can treat this as an opportunity. So we have to make the choices and develop the skills so that we can thrive.
0: And excuse me, uh, Blaine and Ross, I got to touch in because I know, Blaine, this is going to set you off in another direction. It's really interesting that you said our brains are limited. Our minds are not. But I can agree that our anatomy, our biochemistry, bioanatomy have certain capabilities I would love for, you know, you and Blaine to discuss this for me, because this is an area that I always rely on the mentorship of Blaine Bartlett. I think more than the capacity of the brain, uh, we really are more limited with this information overload with time, because we only have 24 hours a day. And I think that's a bigger limitation. So I'd love to hear, Ross, you and Blaine have a a bit of a discussion about the reconciliation of time within the limitation and why that may make us feel even more overloaded than the limitation of our anatomy or our, our human uh, restraints.
2: Well, well, there's finite in our bandwidth. So we, we all know the concept of bandwidth for our comms and the same thing for humans. And so our bandwidth is how much information we can take in a period of time. So, so that's limited, but so part of the solution is to allocate our attention with intention. We need to be working out, well, where should our attention go? And I think we can develop that capability you mentioned before to discern what does matter to us, what does serve our purpose, what does enable us to achieve what we want to achieve and what doesn't. And as we get better and better at that, we can allocate our attention to the things that matter, to the types of attention that will drive our success.
1: You know that's yeah. I, I love that answer, uh, Ross. For this reason, I mean, I, I remember being yeah in school, yeah, and just looking at the clock, going, "God, it's only moved three minutes. I've been sitting here for two hours." And the idea of being intentionally focused on something, time just disappears. The experience of time, and it's that intentional focus that, to the exclusion of other yeah inputs, that begins yes. to uh, yeah, enhance my experience of. I've got a surfeit of time. I've got, there's, a, there's plenty of time here for me to actually work with as long as what I'm focused on is important, meaningful, and engaging. And if it's important, meaningful, and engaging, there's, you know, things get to be very interesting at that point in time. If I'm overwhelmed, it's usually because I'm, there's a scatological approach to my, you know, my awareness. Yeah, it's, it's coming in all over the place and things just kind of slow down to make room for all of the stuff that's coming in. Well, is that a fair assessment?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's my so that's where our ability to focus, our ability to apply our attention for a period of time is absolutely fundamental. And the reality is, you know, our information, well, we do need to scan for information. You know, we do need to spend some time taking it in. And we do need some time to carve out where we can truly engage, create new ideas, let our minds envisage uh, infinite possibilities and to crystallize the thing, the foundations will create that. And in order to do that, we need to have periods of time and whatever, in whatever guise, whatever time to be able to say all distractions off, all notifications off. Everyone says, only interrupt me if it's the end of the world. And for a period of time, that's all you do. And Mm -hmm. that's not all the time, but there's got to be some times when you do that.
1: Every person I know that has ever been successful, and David, you are an exact, uh, you know, such an exemplar of this, the focus, you know, the focus, every, every leader I've worked with has the ability to be just directly focused to the exclusion of what, you know, and it's almost a mad scientist, <laughs> sort of an approach. It's kind of like, there's nothing else out there, you know, slip a pizza under the door, just let me do what I'm doing, and we'll be fine, because what will come out the backside trust me, is going to be good. So that information synthesis, the for the sake of what, gets to be really interestingly, uh, I think, compelling. Now, and so there's a question embedded here. Um, in the work that you've done with, and you've worked with some luminaries, I mean, city. I mean, I'm just going to name some companies, there, City, Coke, Google, Microsoft, P&G, PwC, I've worked with PwC a lot. How do you get them to focus or to appreciate the need to focus such that they can stay in front of the wave
2: so this is where you know, in a sense i mean as you say keeping ahead of the wave. because in a way what i've distilled in the book thriving on overload is what i do as a futurist as a futurist i have to be able to keep across all the things that are emerging to be able to come back so this becomes a series of disciplines so if you are a leader again you need to be carving out time to think about the future and there's this only a small minority of leaders that actually do Take the time to be pulled away from from the present, which we keep on going to pull back to, to be able to think constructively about the future. And this requires building some frameworks, working out where the information fits together, to be able to plan some pathways, to be able to please what supports those. So again, this is a carving out of time where there is the focus where you're explicitly identifying the information that will support you and being able to map your path to a positive future.
0: Which is really intriguing because we've talked about four intertwined powers uh, that you discuss in the book, just the four of them, but there's five actually that you discuss. And the one we've discussed, we've discussed attention and intention, the purpose, the filtering, prioritization and the synthesis. Um, But I'm really curious because those seem more obvious to me than this fifth superpower, uh, which is interesting because it's so so subjective in its nature. I think that the physics, quantum physics, and metaphysics as a fut- futurists are very easily exposed in purpose and filtering and attention and synthesis. But the idea of framing is very subjective. And I'm really curious how you see the fifth superpower of framing intertwined with these other more, I think, obvious superpowers.
2: So framing is building frameworks. And this is the foundation of our knowledge and understanding. So there's been a lot of studies which have shown that how expertise develops is that we recognize patterns. We see things happening over time, and whether we're a tennis pro or uh, working in the financial markets, the, the experience that builds up, the expertise means that we can recognize those patterns. So the framing is building the frameworks where all of the individual pieces of information we see we deliberately pull them together to see what the connections are, how we can construct a model for our knowledge. And so, you know, the Warren Buffetts and Charlie Mungers of, of this world talk about our mental models, and we do need to have our mental models. And these are our frameworks. But we can be deliberate around how it is we choose and develop and how we filter information to pull those under the framework. So in a way, this is the center of being able to build our knowledge out of unlimited information and make better decisions from it.
1: Yeah. As you're talking about that, yeah, that framing piece, I mean, I, I think of a picture frame as an example uh, or you know, uh, how I frame an argument. Basically, what it is, is it's a contextual structure and context provides meaning to what lies within that frame. And if you're going to look at synthesizing, how do I synthesize? Well, it has to be meaningfully done. Connecting the dots, there's meaning in the connection. So the framing, yeah, you've got five intertwined powers here, but I would be interested in your take if there was a hierarchy. Where would framing rest in that hierarchy? Because it's so much a part of generating meaning, which creates behavior.
2: So purposes at the center. And we need to know what our purpose is, what it is we want to achieve, what what the meaning is, in order to be able to frame the other pieces. So, in a way, filtering and attention come together. We work out what to filter. We pay attention the right ways. And the other two powers fit together is in framing and synthesis, where framing is building that underlying thesis. The synthesis is how we pull all of that together to form a whole, the true understanding at the higher level of. What it is we're engaging with? What it is it we want to create? And what it is it we can see? The that That's the uh, thing that draws on our unconscious mind more than the analysis, which is the slicing apart, which is resides in our conscious minds. Beautiful.
0: We are thriving today and thriving on overload as well. Thriving on overload.com. Thriving on overload is the name of the book. World's leading futurist himself, the founding chairman of the Advanced Human Technologies Group, showing us a better way to get there, finding those directions from those who maybe are connecting the dot backwards to where we want to be and what we are becoming. Uh, incredible information, Ross. We really appreciate you coming on. Definitely have to have further discussions to blow yeah. my mind and even Blaine's. Ross Dawson, thanks for joining us on Office Hours.
2: Real pleasure, David Blaine. Thanks.
0: Brilliant. Thank you, my friend. up? <laughs> really good. Man, what a great way to start off. Cool. Uh, you know, I, I almost want to rename the show from, I know it's Office Hours, the Soul of Business, or Mindset Mastermind, the Blaine, whatever you want to call it. But, um, you know, it, it's like MBA in a day. That's what I, I, I got. <laughs> <Hey, laughs>
1: I'll run with that one. That's great. MBA in a yeah. day.
0: <laughs> MBA in a day. We got Office Hours for your our MBA in a day, the attitudinal, behavioral, Institute of Blaine Bartlett and David Meltzer. Uh, we have another great professor coming on, the founder and CEO of Electra Beverages, iDrinkElectra.com. Um, and her podcast is one that's aligned uh, with my career and uh, your ringtone. Uh, it's uh, Athletes Who Mean Business. And uh, it, it, it's uh, an amazing um, one in, in your documentary. Uh, that's upcoming now is a league of our own, not a league of your own, which my lookalike John Lovitz was in the movie, a league of your own. So I get confused a lot of times, especially if I gained a little weight, uh, but welcome to <laughs> office hours, Fran, Fran. Hey, hey.
3: How are y'all? Good to see you. Call, ringing in from Texas. Good to see
0: y'all. Oh, well, stay cool down there. <laughs> uh, but You know, I've been in this business, what I call the bug light business, and that's really one of your expertise, uh, leveraging uh, sports celebrities. Mm -hmm. um, And I've done it for philanthropic purposes and causes throughout my career. Um, But, you know, nothing's more emotional. I think sports are the second most emotional business you can be in next to children you know people will starve themselves to get their kids piano lessons so you can't you cannot you can't compete against children but sports is next up after that and uh, you're building you know through your podcast quite a, a genre of, of how to do business uh, with athletes for athletes and from athletes and this new documentary really excites me we saw a league of your own about women's baseball now we have a documentary about the history of women's pro basketball which has much greater success than uh, women's professional baseball. What uh, geared you or focused you on the big business of basketball and exposing and raising the awareness of women's professional basketball specifically?
3: Yeah, I was an athlete. I played uh, in college, played a little bit in high school, and then I attended the University of Texas on a full scholarship, uh, lost nine games in my four years as a, as a scholar athlete at Texas. All, all,
0: the, all the UConn, right? <laughs> Back <to> UConn, yeah. <laughs> uh, we,
3: were, we were the UConn. Let me just say that we were the UConn before UConn yeah. was the UConn. So we uh, capped off my senior season as national champions with a 34-0 record. That's actually my license plate on my car, so i never let people forget it. UT 34-0. Um, so I, I knew very early on that sports, as you said, David, is a, is a huge business, especially being at, a, at an institution like the University of Texas where – You know, we're playing Alabama this weekend. I don't know what's going to happen there, but it's going to be an exciting weekend. But what I learned when I was there was that there was always this life after sports that was Mm -hmm. intriguing for me. So it was great to be an athlete, a scholar athlete, but it was more important what I could do afterwards. So just real briefly, I became an ESPN announcer a few years after I played in Italy and Switzerland. I I really exploited the life after part of that. And what I started to realize was that a lot of athletes were really afraid of retirement and they were afraid of retirement because they didn't know what was beyond the sky. They didn't know what was after the last bounce. And that's really how athletes who mean business came, came about. People started asking me, how did you become an announcer for ESPN? How did you write your first book? How are you consulting with these fortune 100 companies talking about team building and culture? And it really started as a sophomore in college where someone asked me, you know, what is it? What's what's for you after this? What are you going to do after this? And I had to come up with an answer. I had to do a paper on that. And I started to explore the business of sports. And that's really how this all came about.
1: Yeah. We had, um, yeah, in this current season of uh, office hours on Apple TV and Bloomberg TV, uh, Meta World Peace, we had an opportunity. I had an mm-hmm. opportunity to sit and talk with him for a bit. And same sort of a story. Yeah. The amazing success after the fact. Yeah. making success during the fact. Mm-hmm. And that transitional piece is just fascinating to me because it's about reinvention. Yeah. But it's not about completely capitulating what was, it's how do I leverage what was. Part of that's the work ethos, part of that is, you know, just a natural talent for, you know, uh, and a hunger that's kind of built into that. Mm-hmm. How, would, Fran, I'm very curious here, how would you describe uh, your transitional journey? What, what, you know, what was the catalyst for that?
3: The, cat- yeah, yeah. Yeah. About
1: the movie. I love
3: that question because the catalyst app actually happened when I was 19 years old. I was sophomore in Texas. Someone at Dell asked me to come over and talk to their CEOs about teamwork. Okay. I want you all to hear that. I'm 19. They wanted me to come over and talk to their CEOs about teamwork. And at this time, as you guys know, right now there's NIL name, image, likeness. So athletes can actually be paid. If they went to do this, but back in my day, you couldn't be paid. So after it was over, they said that was amazing. Oh my goodness! I said, okay, okay, okay. I appreciate the compliments, but um, if I could have been paid today, how much would you have paid me? They said about ten thousand dollars. I said, what? Ten thousand dollars? Are you kidding me? And uh, <laughs> and that's when I realized, like, oh, this basketball thing, you know, if it doesn't work out. This, I got something else to do. But it really turned the light on. Because I had no idea, as we know, the knowledge, the knowledge business now, right? The expert business now. That was the beginning of that for me. And understanding that people would pay me and would pay me premium dollars for my knowledge, for my expertise, for my know-how. And that that was the catapult. That was the catalyst for everything that I've become since
0: then. I love that. Yeah. Uh, we love yeah. you, Fran. I mean, your energy and personality are say <laughs> yeah. Not that I haven't been exposed to it before as I've been a fan <laughs> of yours, but more importantly too, um, you know, it's interesting because I have deep relationships with uh, UT and uh, Ricky Williams, who actually went to the same high school as I and, and we represented and spent time with him when he was at Texas. And of yeah. course, Chris, Chris Del Conte is a close friend and, We do a little mentoring ship, and just probably one of the greatest athletic directors uh, in the NCAA. And, you know, if you've been to UT, if you've spoken there or been a a participant in any activity or a student, (laughs) you know, there's a different energy or frequency at the University of Texas. Now, one of the issues that is not just uh, in Texas, but in our country uh, is sports drinks and hydration. And I know there's been a big phase about these energy drinks, which, by the way, are not sports drinks, so you know, and they're not good for hydration at all. Um, But I think there's always been, since the invention of Gatorade, uh, an idea that we have a long way to go uh, with hydration and sports drinks. And the more that we know about them, I've been surprised over all of these decades that we haven't seen, as we have in the energy space, a greater advancement... Uh, in sports drinks and hydration in uh, the science of it. And you've created an, our CEO of Electra uh, that really deal with the science behind what we need to hydrate uh, people and some of the misguided misconceptions about sports drinks that have actually been detrimental to athletes, especially as the world is heating up, even though people are denying there's climate change I would disagree. It seems to be the world is heating up. Yeah. Uh, we need more. We need more hydration. What are some of the things that were frustrating when you were an athlete, especially down in Texas, where it's always been hot, uh, <laughs> that you've changed with an Electra?
3: Yeah, I mean, think about it. There hasn't been a significant innovation in the sports drink category in 50 plus years. I mean, Gatorade has been around over a century, over half a half century. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And yet, there hasn't been something developed that's clearly better for you, and so that's the growing category. It's not like it's perfect, but it's better for you. I created Electra because I was running a 5K. A few okay, let's let's be honest. I was walking a 5 a few years ago. Let's, let's be totally honest
0: here. I was walking
3: the 5K. Hey, anyway, when and- you've
0: won as many championships as you, you can walk wherever you want. You've already run. You've run enough.
3: Right, I agree. I agree. Someone handed me the sponsor's drink and just before I got ready to drink it, because that's what you do. You cross the line, you're barely breathing, you grab it, you chug it up. And I turned and I looked and it was one of the big three. I won't give them any pub on this on this show, but it was one of the big three. And I turned it around. I looked at the ingredients and I said, what is this? Now, mind you, I've I've consumed that drink. I probably, you know, consumed tons, literally tons of sports drinks. So I've had that drink before, but this was the first time I really examined and scrutinized the ingredients. Went home, called a good friend of mine who had exited a CPG, a consumer packaged good company. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm thinking about starting a sports drink company. (laughs) Thinking about starting a sports drink company to beat out these other guys and at least be in a different lane. What do you think? I hired her. She became an an investor and an advisor in my company, and we found that there was this lane for better for you all natural ingredients even though the FDA doesn't like that it's not on my packaging but there's nothing artificial in my stuff it tastes great because as y'all know if it tastes like crap nobody's gonna drink it Uh, I don't care how good it is for you so really was kind of figuring out the flavor profile of Electra Um, before I got it to market. And so we launched last January on Shark Tank and people saw it and said, what are you doing? Do you realize that Gatorade is going to crush you? I think Mr. Wonderful said, like the cockroach you are. And I said, that's okay. That's okay. Because in a $50 billion category, I think I can carve out like a hundred million in about six years. And so that's what we we keep our eye on is really better for you, better ingredients, um less crap in the drink and, and we'll find the audience.
0: That's what I want is a tagline of an energy drink. Less crap. Um, less crap. <laughs> you, know, got, you got last question for us? Yeah. I, I, I'm gonna circle
1: back to you know that epiphany moment when you were 19 mm. and there was ten thousand dollars. That ten thousand had always been there but you weren't aware of it. And I've got a i have mean, got I mean I love your podcast. Um the you know the idea of you know Getting people to begin to think differently and and the thinking differently, noticing that there are things out there that they could do. Awareness precedes choice making and expand my awareness. I expand the choices that are available to me. I can always make money. I just may not be aware of how to do it. So uh, it's not so much a question as much as an acknowledgement of how you've been able to leverage that. Because it's phenomenal and I, I I applaud what you're doing, and you're doing the same thing with uh with your sports drink too that's uh, Thank you. it's, Thank it's you. amazing
0: yeah we we're addressing you know a bigger market than just athletes these days, mm-hmm. both with your podcast and with the product right it's uh, I mean I'm good at two of the three of these I consider myself a great doer, a great hustler yeah. Uh, And the average athlete. Um, So (laughs) I I would say I was an average division three athlete, but that's a a high potential for me to even be considered (laughs) in that category. But I've been around the greatest ones on earth and Mm -hmm. you are, you are one of those as as well. Um, You know, just so much appreciate uh, what you're doing. I want everyone to support and to do research and to learn the difference. I remember just so you know, on the aspect of competition, a young guy came into Lee Steinbryce to run the big sports agency, and a young guy named Kevin Plank. Uh,
3: I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. the
0: young guy came in and asked for ten thousand dollars to invest in his apparel company, and uh, Under Armour. He said, and it was a different apparel company. And it, and Lee and I looked at him and said, "Don't you know <laughs> we were Mr. Wonderful? Nike's going to crush you. What yep. like what? What is ten thousand dollars going to do for you, brother? There's no way." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said, look, the category is big enough that I'm going to parse out. Yes. You know, At that time, he said, I'm going to parse out my $10 million, Dave, and your $10,000 uh, will be worth a lot of that $10 million. You know, Why don't you guys go ahead and believe in me? Yeah. And instead, we did what most investors do. We laughed at it, scoffed at it, made fun of it. And now we applaud Kevin Plank, and we guaranteed we're p- applauding you, Fran Harris, for yes. not only what you've done, but what you will do, not only what you've done, but what you're becoming. And uh, it's just, you know, typical for the Texans out there. Keep up the great <laughs> work. idrinkelectra.com. If you are meaning business, whether you're an athlete, a doer, a goer, a hustler, check it out. Check out the podcast. Check out the drink. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Fran Harris, thanks for joining us on Office Hours.
3: Thank you. Thank you, guys. Take, Take care.
0: Can't wait to check out the documentary as well. We'll give that another plug. Absolutely, and we'll I and it. I love
1: it. I love the, uh, the name of the website idrinkelectra.com. It's kind of exactly. like a statement. It's kind of like, oh, where can I get some? I drink Electra. You too. Yeah, yeah.
0: it's amazing, right? And I love the name. It's, it's, uh, it's great marketing. It's she, I think the documentary is coming out during the Final Four. Uh, yeah, the Final uh, W. Uh, yeah, NBA they, uh, yeah, that's At the women's final. Twenty
1: twenty three. The women's Final Four. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So in March, we'll check it out, uh, everybody. All right. We're right on time. And it's Thursday. how that happen? My my man, Blaine Bartlett, learn Bartlett.com forward slash LMM. Uh, that's for the incredible mindset mastermind, if you're wondering. And this is my mentor, who I'm blessed to share every Thursday uh, with for an hour with bringing on these extraordinary guests uh, that we have. And, uh, I'm hoping here Jake is in the house. I can see him there. Founder and CEO of LaunchPeer, launchpeer LaunchPeer.com. You know, there's so many different types of incubator programs and accelerators Mm -hmm. and launch pads. Uh, Would love to hear about the nuances of LaunchPeer uh, and how it's uh, combining several different forces uh, to help uh, different companies meet their objectives and launch uh, as we need so much help in this area. How, how are you differentiating uh,
4: your incubator program and how did it all start for you? Yeah, I feel like you can probably throw a rock and hit like 20 incubators in any city, right? Yeah. So Which is, I think it's um, thing because entrepreneurs are going to save the world. So I personally yes. think it's a great thing. And but I love here. the competition. I mean, I think uh, entrepreneurs need all the help they can get, especially early on. So the way that we differentiate ourselves kind of starts about 10 years ago. Um, I was transitioning out of the military, got a job in tech, and we're in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, we're not a local accelerator. We, we work with startups all over the country. But, you know, when you work in tech in a small town, you're going to get involved in the entrepreneur community. And I loved it um, when I started getting involved in it. And I think I loved it because... When I was a kid, I was an entrepreneur without really knowing about it. Like, I think that happens to a lot of people. I was homeless for a while when I was a kid. um, And, you know, I was one of those kids that was like, I am going to do whatever I can to go buy lunch like all my friends are buying. So I was just hustling for money, like – Selling art drawings, betting on t- making terrible bets on Monday night football games. Uh, maybe you could have helped me a little bit, David, with like making better bets, but I, hope I lost so. a lot of money on that. But you know, I was always hustling doing something, but I didn't know what an entrepreneur was. Um, but fast forward to you know about 10 years ago, and I started getting involved in the entrepreneur community, I realized that. There's a lot of support that entrepreneurs need, especially non-technical founders in the technical space. A lot of smart people out there that are non-technical have great tech ideas. They just don't know how to implement those. And we decided, when I back then, I decided to start Launchpeer, and we were not an accelerator. We weren't an incubator. We were just a software development company. So entrepreneurs would come to us with an idea. We'd give them a quote. We would build it. But I hated it, um, and I hated it not because I didn't like the work we were doing. I hated it because what was happening is entrepreneurs would work with us for three to four or five months. We'd build them an application they'd go off and do their own thing after that, but almost without fail, six months later, they would call us and say, "Hey, we're running out of cash. you know like we're having trouble getting users, having trouble getting customers. Uh, we need to raise capital i I don't know how what I'm supposed to do next and when we were researching this about three years ago, we found that it wasn't because of, you know, some magical reason. It was because of something that every entrepreneur hates, which is, did you properly validate the idea before you even spent 50 K or hundred K or 150 K building it? And most of the time the answer would be like, well, yes, I asked my, you know, best friends, cousins, uncle, if it was a good idea. And they said, yes, you know, I'm like, okay, (laughs) that's not, It's not really what validation is. And so our incubator is different because we focus on helping first-time founders become full-time founders by focusing on the things that are the boring stuff, like validating the idea, not taking big bets, focusing on small bets first, and doing the things that really what means zero to one. Whereas a lot of incubators and accelerators, they're really more focused on taking startups from one to two. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, if you don't get to one, you're never going to get to two.
4: Yeah. And if you try to skip from zero to two, you're going to blow a ton of money doing it. And it happens over and over every single day. And the analogy I'll use is like going and uh, trying to gamble at the casino. And a lot of founders, what they do, and I feel like this is a problem with startup culture. And I say cult in all caps. It is kind of a culture. (laughs) And it kind of pushes founders, especially new ones, to go take really big bets um, where, you know, you're going to a casino, you drain your bank account and all your resources, you put everything on red, uh, or you, you bet on your one hand and you're like, if this works, I'm going to, this is going to be great. But if it doesn't work, how often can you take out a second mortgage? How often can you take out another loan? Like you can't do that all the time. Is it smarter to take what you have, make small bets, take the winnings from that, and keep compounding your successes into bigger and bigger successes. So we have a big belief here that founders shouldn't go all in on one idea. They should take small bets on, sure, that one idea might turn into great ideas, but it's smarter to take smaller bets, take that winnings, take that profit, and then go and reinvest it into creating your, what most people would call like a moonshot or something.
1: You know what, What's interesting to me about that, Jake, is that you're taking, and this goes back into the notion of time, the seemingly pervasive, let's do it. I, I, I've got to get there quick. Yeah. I've got yeah. to get there quick. And it's kind of like, no, you don't have to get there quick. Actually, if you take your time and build the infrastructure and the foundation underneath it, you're going to likely get there, right? But it's yeah. not going to be flashy. It's not going to be, look what I did. And I'm an overnight success question here. Yeah, uh, just the way that uh, launch peer is structured, it's an mm. equity free incubator yeah. program. So, Talk a little bit about how you're structuring that uh, as as an incubator uh, itself, because typically, you, know, you would be taking an equity position, in the front. right?
4: Yeah, we don't take any equity from our founders. We have instead we charge founders for the work that we do. And part of the reason why we feel comfortable doing that is because unlike most incubators and accelerators where it's and no, I'm not throwing shade at them at all, you know, the mentorship and the network they provide are fantastic. But what they're not doing is they're not doing any service work for the founders. For us, we have developers here, designers here, and they're doing that work for our founders, which is work that those founders who are all non-technical wouldn't be able to do themselves. So instead of paying, I mean, they would typically have to go pay a designer, a developer, a branding person, a marketer, um, you know, a business uh, coach or something like They'd have to pay all these people outside of whatever incubator accelerator they were joining we have all those pieces in-house, which I feel like is a better model because when you're a founder, you're kind of turning into your own general contractor if you're trying to go hire all these pieces. if For anybody who's ever built a house before, it's kind of like, I'm going to hire an electrician over here, a plumber over here, uh, a, you know um, uh, a concrete uh, guy over here, and it's like, are you really going to be the person who knows enough to keep everybody on the same page and know what's supposed to be going on? So instead, with all of that stuff in-house here, our designer knows what our developer's doing. Our developer knows what our startup uh, team is doing. Our marketing team knows what the design team is doing. And everybody's working together as opposed to it being really disparate across the board. So it kind of creates a model where the founder is able to focus on the business while we're focusing on everything else. And I think one of the other aspects is uh, the idea
0: that a lot of people miss in trusting and vetting um, mm-hmm. the startup uh, atmospheric culture is truly one of trust and as you stated you know it's an extreme uh, ignorance uh, when we're dealing as a startup there's so much that we don't know and such a high price of a dummy tax uh so even without capitalization the mere aspect of a collective group of trusted and vetted partners that can help facilitate guidance mentorship teaching and coaching is an extraordinary value. But there's three areas that I think a lot of incubators and launchpads, accelerators miss, and they're basic areas. And I was wondering what approach you take into, one, deciphering the market, uh, mm-hmm. and, and two, you know, really understanding market makers. I think that's the area that an incubator that's worth their weight uh, in entrepreneurship will help gather the information or give the awareness of, all right, here's how the market's made, or this is who's making the market. Um, And then the the third one is obvious, which you and I will giggle and and blame as well, that there's actually startups, as you know, that, you know, rely on their dog's babysitter for validation. (laughs) But, but even worse, even worse, I can't believe that they haven't even thought about margin. I mean, I've met companies that have literally spent over a million dollars and, I look through the market, the market maker, and then, you know, assume that they've looked at the margins and just give it a glance. And I'm like, do you realize you're never going to make any money? There's no margins in this. Um, So I would love for you to kind of address how you guys look at the markets, the market makers. Margins is math. So I don't have to worry about that one. Or if you have any funny stories to tell about companies that come in and you're like, you guys will never make money. uh, I'd be happy to hear those. (laughs) Yeah,
4: for sure. So um, those are everything that you just said, I think we would agree that for most new founders, those are the boring parts, right? Like that's not what they want to think about. They want to think about uh how cool their products gonna be or what features they're gonna include or all what, of that what name right? they're gonna trademark. I love that one. Exactly. Was how much, fund how much funding like, they're gonna raise, like what patent they're gonna <laughs> file. And it's like they never really think of basic things like is your offer clear enough to to even understand what it is that you're trying to do? I review pitch decks all the time and landing pages for our founders all the time, and the biggest mistake they make is like, I've went through 17 slides of your deck and I still don't know what exactly it is that you're doing, you know? Right. And that's a problem, but that's like something that's boring, and founders don't want to want to focus on it. So we focus on the fundamentals like that from the very beginning. One of our uh, principles here is like we're, we, our team, and the founder. Is not smarter than the market. And so the first thing that we have them do is not validate based on customer interviews because that could be left up interpretation. Uh, We have them validate based on pre launch email lists because who knows that the people will actually do anything. We actually borrow a process from Tim Ferriss. And if you've ever, if anybody here, I'm sure you guys have read the four hour work week. The way that Tim Ferriss would validate his book ideas is he would actually come up with an idea, build a landing page to make it look like the book was live he would run Google ads to it and see, would people click the button to even try to buy the book? Like before I write the book, and it's Tim Ferriss, right? I mean, he knows what he's doing. Um, He didn't want to waste all the time writing the book if he didn't think people would actually buy it. So we basically stole that process from Tim Ferriss and use it for all of our founders. So that allows us to do a lot of things like what you said, which is the unit economics of the startup, right? If you're building and launching a social media app and it costs you $180 to get somebody to click on that button, it's probably not going to work out, right? I mean, just basic napkin sketch math, like it's not going to work. And we take a lot of that numbers. And the first thing we do before we build a product or anything after that process is let's build out a forecasted financial model. Like you're going to sit down with somebody on our financial team, build out that financial model. We're going to look at two to three years of projections and see, does this make sense? What's your, um, you know, how long is it going to take you to exit the valley of death? How big is that valley of death? Like, is it ten million dollars? You're a first-time founder, no Ivy League degree, nothing about it. Investor gave you ten million dollars for that, or is it better to figure out maybe a different business model? And once our founders, it's interesting because I can see our founders' faces when they come in, how they want to jump straight to their product. We tell them we have to do this first, and their face kind of like, ugh. You know, like, I don't want to do, that. I don't want to do this. And then when it's over and they get out of that, and now it's time to focus on the product because we got that stuff taken care of. They're like, I am so glad that I did this because for a lot of our founders, they're full-time working at a job. They have a wife and kids. I've, I'm married. I have three kids. And to be able to look at my wife in the face or somebody's husband in the face or whatever and say, I am taking smart risks by making sure I'm doing this the right way as opposed to, hey, honey, can I take 100 k out of our bank account for something? I don't even know if it's going to work. That's a really difficult conversation to have. So if we take care of that stuff now, even if it's painful, it's like taking vitamins. Nobody wants to take vitamins. That's the right way for startups to move. But most incubators, you're right, don't focus on that at all, really.
1: If I'm um, an incubator, not an incubator, if I'm an entrepreneur, just Mm -hmm. kind of... Square, you know, not zero, but maybe 0.5. Yeah. And I'm looking for an incubator. And uh, I want to just a uh, shout out to Evan Rubio here. You know, he's watching the show right now. Uh, he's, he's got a question about what's the best way to find an incubator in his area.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, yeah. We're obviously going to point to you, but.
4: Uh... <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So we're, our program, the other reason it's different is because we're fully remote. Yes. Um, we work with startups all over the country. We're part-time, so we have structured our program to be part-time. So there's no – most incubators and accelerators are like, hey, 12 weeks, you're out, right? For us, it's you join, and you're going to stay in until you get the result. And for us, the result is they're able to go full-time on their startup and or raise the capital they need to be able to do to do that. So it's either revenue or raising capital. That's our goal. And most accelerators and incubators, they don't work that way. They're in person, Um, YC is a really good example. Most people know Y Combinator. You have to go to San Francisco, be there 12 weeks in person and hope that things work out. And that's a kind of a a hard thing for most founders who are married to to do or not married and you have a job and bills to pay, especially in the economy that we're in right now. Um, What I would say is if you're looking at an incubator and accelerator, talk to them about what the best outcome that you can expect would be. Because most incubators and accelerators will be very honest about that. They'll say, look, our job is not to get you a specific result. Our job is to connect you with the right people who are going to build your network, which is an underrated thing for new founders. Both of you know how important having a good network is to your business. That's what most accelerators and incubators do. If it was me, I would first look at the ones in your area that are backed by uh, the city or the government because they have very strict requirements of what they are or They are not supposed to do. Um, the next thing I would do is think to yourself, are you ready for an incubator and accelerator? Cause again, like I said, most of them are designed to go from one to two. You have something, you have some customers, you have some users, something like that. And they're designed to help you like make the connections you need to maximize that. Most of them are not designed from zero to one. So think first, like, am I ready for that? Or should I be sitting down? And I don't care if you do it with us, I'm not trying to pitch launch peer, uh, or should I sit down and build something first? That way I can make the most out of the time I'm going to be at this incubator or accelerator. Yeah, we have the tortoise and the hare, although his name is Jake Hare. They
0: take the tortoise <laughs> approach. They take, they take their time. Yes, take your time. Uh, <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. They crawl before they walk, before they run. And I love the perspective and I love the collective that you utilize in a part-time remote atmosphere, which is more aligned with, I think, allowing people to launch instead of forcing a circle into a square uh Mm -hmm. hole so very very clever very powerful very valuable uh to provide that there's a lot of you know people who i think you know and i find it as a consultant it's it's amazing that they charge for what they that you do and they know a game because they you know Go ahead and help you, and then they take you to their three friends and pretend like they're investors, and <laughs> you're out another hundred grand before you know it, and yeah. without actually having anything uh, that has moved you forward uh, to a successful launch. So, mm-hmm. thank you for what you're doing. I lo- love the program; it's worldwide, uh, at least countrywide. So, reach out to launchpeer.com. Founder and CEO of Launchpeer, Jake Hare. Thanks for joining us on Office Hours. Yeah, thank you guys. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Jake.
1: Great talking our- with you.
0: Yeah. Great guest today. All right. It's, uh, a lot of takeaways. So I'm interested to see what your takeaway for the day is.
1: Um, you know, there's, there's two of them actually that comes to focus you know, and one of them is focus. Okay, <laughs> I mean, I'll just <laughs> go back, uh, you know, right up front. Um, you know, when we were, when we were talking to Ross, uh, but the, the power of focus to discriminate, you know, to allow for, a, uh, What's important, what's truly relevant to actually enter into my thinking process and enter into my radar so that I can actually leverage it and do something with it. And to Ross's point, and we've talked about this before, there is so much information out there, but information isn't knowledge. And knowledge doesn't just appear, it's in reference to something that's significant, that's important, and that focus is what changes the nature of information into knowledge so that it can actually use it and leverage it. And so that, that would be one takeaway. The other one, and, and this is kind of concomitant kind of with that, is just the nature of awareness. Everything exists. It's, it, all possibilities are out there. I just may not be aware of what they are. And when I can become aware of it, uh, that you know, changes the, the whole nature of the game. And I think Fran was just an absolute exemplar of that. 19 years old, you, you would have paid me how much to do this? I, didn't know, I had no idea that was even possible. That awareness begins to assault you know, the mind for other things to occur. And I mean, and that's literally um, you know, what, what Jake was talking about, too. You know, how do you get from zero to five? Well, you don't get there until you go to zero to one. You need to be aware of the small things that need to be in place here. It's John Wooden. I'm going to teach you how to put your socks
0: on. She shoelaces. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <I agree. Exactly. laughs>
1: and, and And Bill Walton going, I know how to put my socks on. No, I want you to put your socks on the way I want you to put your socks on. We're going to practice this. Are you yeah. crazy? No, but I'm successful. The most successful coach on the planet.
0: Yeah, sir. That focus and awareness. Focus and awareness. Mine's complimentary and synergistic to your takeaway. Mine is... You give meaning to everything you see. And, you know, obviously as a futurist, it's so important to the meaning that we give to our trajectory of what we think we want with an open mind, open heart and open hands, as Ross discussed and thriving on overload, obviously Fran giving meaning to everything she sees in sports and business and hydration. And as the founder and CEO of Launchpeer, Jake Hare, helping people give meaning to what they see because there's so much interference, uh, people overselling, back-end selling, lying, manipulating, and cheating, those who are living with hope and leasing their entire lives away uh, with misguided hope without a partnership to trust and vet the meaning that we can give the trajectory of what we think we want and be able to go from zero to one, one to two. Uh, Very synergistic to your intent and attention that creates the coincidences that we want or better. Blame Bartlett, whatever I did, paid attention to or gave attention to to have the coincidence of being able to see you and to have you as a friend, you and your wife. I just want to tell you how grateful I am. It's Thankful Thursday, and you are in my prayers every single day, and I pray for you. your happiness, health, wealth, and worthiness may continue to strive and thrive as it has. Thank you, my friend.
1: Thank you, my friend. Blessings to you. And, and congratulations, number one, on your anniversary. Thank and, you. And although no you didn't have anything to do with her birthing on Julie's birthday. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I celebrate
0: I celebrate anything celebratable. But to celebrate my <laughs> wife is one of my favorite things to celebrate. So I am blessed, yep. as you know, as well, and grateful for that. The great Blaine Bartlett. It's com forward slash LMM. If you haven't tried out the Mindset Mastermind you're missing out. It'll change your life. He will change the way you look at things, and the things you look at will change. Thank you for helping me with my mindset, hard set, and handset. We'll see you next week, my friend.
1: You bet, buddy. Take
0: care. Right. Take care. Thanks for joining me. I'm blessed. That man is expensive, and he takes his time every week to be with us. Are you kidding me? It's office hours, it's an MBA for a day with Blaine Bartlett. I'm David Meltzer. If you need anything from me, if it's free, it's we. Just email me, David at dmelzer.com. That's right. That's my email, david at dmelzer.com. If you want my guides, exercises, or even a free book, I'll sign it. I'll send it to you. I'll pay for the book and shipping. Just email me, david at dmelzer.com. I want to thank Matt, our producer. I want to thank all of you for being here. It is thankful Thursday. Remember, be more interested than interesting. We'll see you tomorrow at training. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. Thank you.